First Kings 19. We went through most of 19, and we, we saw Elijah is discouraged and grumpy. And we, we see that despite Elijah's discouragement, grumpiness, being outside of the will of God, not where he's supposed to be. You know, anytime the Lord's asking you, why are you here right now? It means you're not where you're supposed to be. But despite all of that, the Lord meets him at Mount Sinai, and he tells Elijah, I'm not done with you. I still got work for you to do. But as we see Elijah get back to work, the writer of 1 Kings is now going to show his readers, he's going to show us that God never stopped working in Israel while Elijah was gone. And so as we examine God's faithful work and His wayward people, may it remind us that God still wants to work today in a culture with wayward people who many don't want to follow the Lord. So chapter 19, we begin in verse 19. God had told Elijah a few verses earlier, this is your next instructions. You're going to go anoint this guy, this, these two guys to be king, and you're gonna, uh, kings of different nations, and then you're going to anoint Elisha to be prophet in your place. And so, verse 19, he departed, Elijah departed from there, from Mount Sinai, and it says, he found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he, Elisha, left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me, I pray you, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he, Elijah, said unto him, Elisha, go back again, for what have I done to you? And so he, Elisha, returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and uh, boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people, and they did eat. And then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Now, if you've ever been confused because of these two guys' names, don't feel bad. It is extremely common. There is literally just like one way that you say their name that's different. So it's easy to make that mistake. And then, of course, when they're both on scene together, it can be confusing. So I'll try my best to differentiate. But Ja and Sha, right? All right. So Elijah leaves Mount Sinai, heads back into Israel, the place God had called him to be. And he finds this guy that the Lord had told him would be his replacement. That's interesting to me because it means there's effort. He had to go find out where this guy, I mean, he knew where he was, the city, but he didn't know like his house or or whatever. He had to find out, you know, where this guy's at. So he, he does some research, finds out where he is. And when he gets there, he finds him plowing with the 12 yoke of oxen before him and he with the 12th. So this means Elisha's dad is pretty well-to-do. A man would need to be wealthy to own, to need 12 oxen to plow that many fields, to own them, and then to hire people to use them. So this is a, a guy, a young man who's got a, a, lives a pretty affluent life. He's out there working on the 12th pair of oxen. And Elijah does something kind of interesting. It says he passed by him. So, so Elijah's, you know, they're out in the fields walking. He's, Elijah's walking by, and he takes his mantle and throws it onto them and just keeps on walking. And I read that, and I chuckle because I would say Elijah is not the guy you want to use for a class on how to disciple somebody or how to raise them up into leadership, Okay. He is not a model to imitate here, okay? Like the, the best way of like raising someone up or pouring into someone or discipling somebody is not to be like, yo, you're next, and then keep walking, okay? You want to give more personal investment. You want to bring them along. We'll get more on his 
attitude later. But he is doing this because he's, he's letting Elijah know, Elisha know that he's called by God. And we'll explain that in a moment. So verse 20, when this happens, obviously this is shocking to Elisha. And so he leaves his auction and he runs after Elijah. So Elijah's not even like walking slow. He's not like just kind of, hey, come here. You know, and no, I mean, like, he's got to run after him. Like, Elijah just, it's all in, like, one motion. He's like, I did what you told me, God. And Elijah's shuz, got to figure out what's going on, and then he has, he has to run up to catch up to him. And so he left the auction, ran after Elijah, and he said to him, let me, I pray you, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Zechariah 13.4, if you read it on your own, it implies that prophets wore some type of special cloak. And the reason it was special is they, it says they kept the rough hair of the animal on the pelt when they made the cloak. So like if you've got some kind of, you know, like a shawl or something like that to kind of keep you warm, you'd probably, it'd be like a fur type thing. So it was a unique cloak to wear that other people probably didn't wear when they walked around. So that's how Elisha knew exactly what Elijah was saying to him when he throws this mantle on him, his cloak on him. He's basically, Elijah is saying, you've been called by God, kid. And so while Elisha is willing to leave everything to answer God's call, he asked permission. Because again, Elijah is not slowing down. He says, can I just say goodbye to my parents? And I love, again, Elijah's response not because it's a good one. He says, go back again for what have I done to you? What do you mean, what have you done to the kid? You just you told him he's going to be a prophet. He's called by God. And, and in, in your mind, you know what he's doing. He's going to be your successor and your Elijah. Go back again is, well, you need to go back and return. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't tell you to come follow me. God told me to tell you that he has called you, and I did that. Where you go from here is up to you and the Lord. So before we get to Elisha's response, I do want to address Elijah's attitude. The Bible doesn't give us a clue into Elijah's heart at this time, but he sounds a bit snippy to me. Maybe it's just me, but he sounds a bit snippy here, okay? And if so, there is an important truth here, despite any bad attitude he might have, and it's this. Reluctant obedience is still better than disobedience. Reluctant obedience is still better than disobedience. God's servants need to understand that it is their job to obey whether they're enthusiastic about it or not. Now, hold that thought. Surely, the Lord wants us to serve Him enthusiastically with joy, praising Him all the way, right? Like, that's the goal. The goal is to do this because I love Jesus, I am filled with joy because of all He's done for me, and I surely want to be obedient to Him and do whatever He's called me to do, right? That's the goal. But if you're human, you know that that's not always how we feel, right? There are times when we're like, I don't want to do this, Lord. And, or even when we know it's the right thing and we know we should be enthusiastic, we're just not. That's a fact. So while surely the Lord wants us to serve Him enthusiastically with joy, praising Him all the way, there are seasons when even the most faithful of God's servants are barely holding on. There are seasons like that. And here's the sad truth. Some of those servants fall away. Some of those servants abandon their call because it's too hard or it's too painful or too hopeless in their mind. 
I've had conversations with many, a, a pastor or a former pastor, and you, what's going on? And, and they just, you can see it. You can almost visibly see it on their face when you converse. They've lost hope. They don't see any way, or it's too hard in their mind. Like, they don't see any concept of how they get on top of how hard this is. I remember a period of time when showing up to church was one of the hardest things in the world for me. A time when a large part of me didn't care if God closed the doors. I felt like a failure. I felt like I had nothing left to give. But I couldn't fudge on, like, the teaching of God's Word. Like, I wasn't just going to approach my study time and just be like, whatever, you know. Some people did some stuff, and they went some places, and Jesus is cool, maybe. I just wasn't going to do that. I couldn't do that. And I, and I wasn't going to be unkind to others because I knew that had impact and effect. I couldn't bring myself to bail on the people who were faithfully coming every week because even though I felt like a failure, people were still coming, and this was their church, and they liked being there. They loved the people there, and God was ministering to them, and they, they wanted to be there. Probably the biggest problem is I couldn't bring myself to leave a testimony for my wife and kids that God fails because that's how it would be seen. People's eternal status was way too important for me to bring myself to not care at all about how I represented Jesus, so I hung on. But I knew, I knew what I was doing was a far cry from what God wanted me to be doing. I knew there was much more I could be doing, and that lasted for a few years. It was a reluctant obedience. There was a sense of it following God's instructions to a T and not doing much more than that. Yes, I'll study hard. I'll teach. I'll be faithful to that. I'll love your people mostly. I'll be nice to them. Keep on trucking while they'll keep, keep coming. It was reluctant obedience, but it was obedience. And God came alongside me in those struggling years when I wandered around as a grumpy and disappointed pastor. And then God sent some new people in our church, sent some new people into my life who were so hungry for the Lord. I remember thinking, now, Lord? I've got nothing left to give. Why now? Like, shouldn't this just like die a slow, painful death? But here's the truth. The Lord wasn't out of energy. He wasn't even taxed. And He revived me, and He started blessing our church despite that reluctant obedience. Elijah is going to get over his grumpiness and his feelings of failure. He's not going to be snippy like this forever. He's just not there yet. But God's going to honor his obedience because Elijah, Elisha is going to have a greater impact than Elijah in the end. God will honor this obedience and use it for his glory. You know, Bev has a saying. She's like, sometimes you have to fake it till you make it. And the reason is, is because as you're obedient, being obedient to the Lord, even when you don't feel like it, God starts, because you're being obedient, you're, you're in the will of God, God starts working on your heart. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself changing inside as He's doing that supernatural work inside your heart. So if God's called you to something, don't give up. If it feels hopeless, that's normal, but don't stop hoping. Hope against all hope. If it feels too hard, recognize nothing's too hard for him, even if you see no conceivable way that you're ever going to get on top of that situation. Well, Elijah's words, while 
appearing to be snippy. They free Elisha up to do more than just say goodbye to his family. He throws a celebration. So verse 21, he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the yoke, the instruments of the oxen, took the wood and made a barbecue, and he gave unto the people. So he, 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 he threw a going away celebration, celebrated with not just his family, but those around him. And they did eat. And then he arose and he went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Now, I think that's important because that means Elijah had to stick around for the celebration. And you know what I think? I think Elijah probably needed to see a family and their employees excited about the Lord's work. A guy who said, Lord, there's nobody but me left who's faithful to you. And then the first thing he does, he goes back to do the first thing God tells him. He anoints this guy. And the guy's like, yeah, I want to go back and, and say goodbye to my family. He's like, whatever. And then he's like, okay, so I can do more than that. I'm going to throw a party. And Elijah's like, okay. Can you imagine what it was like sitting at that table and seeing all these people who are excited for their son or their friend who's going to now have been called by God to serve him? Must have been a bit of a bomb for a guy who felt alone. It's easy when the queen's coming after you to think nobody's with you. Truth is, we're never alone. This also, however, taught Elisha an important lesson if he was going to be used by God. Elisha, you're going to follow the Lord, not Elijah. You're going to follow the Lord, not people. And this is what Elisha sensed the Lord telling him to do, and so he throws a party. When it's all done, he becomes Elijah's right-hand man. That word ministered, it's the same exact word that was used to describe Joshua's role under Moses' leadership. He became his minister. So <laughs> Elijah drives by and says, hey, you, you're my replacement. And Elisha responded by saying, well, then the best place to learn how to do that is to hang out with you. So I'm just going to be wherever you are, and whatever you need help with, I'm there. If you sense a calling from the Lord, and this is something that, that comes up a lot. I, I, I've had so many conversations with people over the years who says, God's called me to be a fill-in-the-blank. There are many ways to prepare. Elisha could have gone to the school of prophets. He didn't have to follow Elijah. But an equally valid way to prepare is to serve alongside those who are already doing God's work. It's equally valid. They'll come to me like, so, you know, what do I do? And I'm like, well, if God is calling you, there's always some kind of preparation, all right? There always is, because God has to break you. Before God can use you, He has to break you. And then you get back up like, okay, all right. And then the Lord's like, all right, let's do it again. Like, you know, there's still way too much of you there. Let's break it again. And that's what the Lord has to do so that you recognize that those are His people and you keep a light hand. So if God's calling you, there's always some kind of preparation. There's always some kind of humbling, humbling, some kind of sacrifice to be made. But what I find very often when people tell this story to me and I share that step, it's not something they don't already know. They're unwilling to take that next step. See, for whatever reason in our mind, maybe it's just because we are, wow, I'm going to throw another trigger word out there. I'm doing this lately. Maybe because we're very privileged in the United States. But because things tend to come so easily to us, I think we feel like serving God works that way too. 
that all of a sudden, well, I've got a call from God. So I just kind of walk outside my door and boom, there's a little church chapel right here that I can preach at. But it, I'm not saying God couldn't do that. And God certainly has done some interesting things over the centuries with people. But more often than not, there's that step we have to take where we allow the Lord to break us, where we sacrifice our time and our energy and we get out of our comfort zone, we lay down things of our old life. They may not be bad things, but we lay down those things to give our time and our energy to his people. So if you have sensed a call from God, whatever it might be, if it's missions, if it's teaching, if it's being a pastor, being an evangelist, whatever it might be, like, I don't know. There's lots of things God might call to, and that's an exciting thing, but that's just not going to, it's not going to just happen overnight, like all of a sudden you walk out, and all right, I go out on the street and 30 people listen to me preach the gospel. No. What that's probably going to look like is you preaching the gospel to nobody sometimes, and just staying faithful and being broken because as God breaks you down, all the reasons you think, I, you know what, I think I could see how this could happen. And then the Lord's got to go, well, we got to kill all that. So that when things do ever happen and God ever uses you, you'll never go, well, this is why. Instead, you'll go, whoa, how did God do that? God's amazing. Well, we get to chapter 20, and now the scene's going to shift to a world in Israel without Elijah. It says, in Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria gathered all his hosts together, and there were 32 kings with him and horses and chariots, and he went up and he besieged Samaria, and he warred against it. And he sent messengers to Ahab, king of Israel, into the city and said unto him, thus says Ben-Hadad, thy silver and thy gold is mine, thy wives also and thy children, even your goodliest are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said unto him, my lord, O king, according to your saying, I am thine and all that I have." So we find ourselves now in a crisis in the northern kingdom. A Syrian coalition of armies invades Israel. It mentions here that 32 kings come up with this king of Syria named Ben-Hadad. Now, these are not kings of like big nations. Back then, large cities during that time, sometimes even just traveling Bedouins had kings. They had, usually had their own king. And so many of the kings to the north of Israel during David's reign, had become David's vassals. He conquered them, or he struck some deal with them where they pledged their loyalty to David, paid tribute. But the seeds of rebellion grew during Solomon's reign, and then they broke out of the ground completely when Israel split into two kingdoms. And so Ben-Hadad was the most powerful king in that Aramean region in the north, to the north of Israel, and these kings had now become vassals to him. So these guys, it says they went up and besiege Samaria. Now, some people read that and they go, contradiction in the Bible, Israel south of Syria. How could they went up? Well, in the Bible, the phrase went up almost always refers to elevation, not cardinal direction, okay? Almost always refers to elevation. This coalition would have to cross the Golan Heights and then climb the hills of Samaria to lay siege to Ahab's capital. So they did indeed go up. There is no contradiction. The Bible doesn't tell us the motive for the attack, but later verses do reveal the goal that Ben-Hadad is demanding that Ahab become his vassal. He says, you're going you're gonna to swear loyalty to me. You're going to give me all you have. Now, most historians believe that Ben-Hadad's motive was twofold. 
Number one, he wanted to ensure that his southern border was safe. And then number two, he wanted to counter the rising power of Assyria to the northeast. According to a commemorative stone inscription found in eastern Turkey, Ahab and Ben-Hadad would later join forces to fight against Assyria in the Battle of Quargar. So it is possible that's, by the way, not a Jedi Knight. That's a city in uh, Lebanon. Wow, that was a bad joke, wasn't it? (laughs) Nobody got that. Okay, all right. Where's Nate? Nate, did you get it? All right, thank you. I figured you'd get it, so… He's like, it's still a bad joke, Pastor Will. (laughs) So, it is possible at this time that Ben-Hadad felt powerful enough to coerce Ahab to join him instead of trying to form an alliance. So, that makes sense when we consider that Israel has been suffering from a famine for the last three and a half years. Remember Ahab in chapter 18, he was worried that his horses and his pack animals were going to die if they didn't find some grasslands for him. So, it could be that his military was at a disadvantage at this point. Ben-Hadad surely seems correct about the timing because he doesn't encounter any resistance until he reaches Samaria. And when he gets there, Ahab pulls all his soldiers inside the city and they lay siege to it. And so, he sends messengers to Ahab, verse 2, with his demands. He want, you want to cease the hostilities, not have a war? Then here's my demands. Your silver and your gold are mine, your wives and your children, even the best are mine. Now, this is the first time we learned that Ahab had wives besides Jezebel. Usually, it only mentions Jezebel, and up to this point, it doesn't mention anyone else. These would be marriages gained from treaties with other leaders in the region, and he says, they all belong to me now. Why would that be important? Well, Those treaties are formed that way through marriages like that because the idea is, all right, we'll strike this economic deal, but I've got your daughter, so make sure you keep your end of the bargain because your daughter's in my care. Same thing. You've got got my son. He's married now to your your daughter. And the idea is, is these marriages kind of were guarantees to ensure that treaties and agreements were kept. So the idea is when he's saying even the best, in other words, the, the most valuable marriages that you've made, they now belong to me. And if anything happens to them because you decide to go against me and not become my vassal, well, that puts you in an even bigger bind than having a problem just with me. So Ben-Hadad, he wants these wives who would put Ahab's most important treaties at risk if something were to happen to those women, which would make Ahab a very loyal vassal. So Israel must have been in bad shape to try to conduct a war against uh, Ben-Hadad because Ahab agrees to the terms. Verse 4, and the king of Israel answered and said, my Lord, O king, according to your saying, I am thine and all that I have. My Lord means my master. And his phrase, I and all that I have are yours, that's, those are words of total surrender. Total surrender. That's an agreement to be a vassal. I'll agree to your terms. Now, that's going to bankrupt the royal funds and put Ahab in a tight spot if he wants to go back on his agreement with Ben-Hadad later on but it would put an end to any bloodshed or any that had occurred or stop it from happening. Funds can be reacquired. Treaties can be reworked. But you can't win your own people back when your decisions have cost them their loved ones. Now, on a side note, this is an excellent description of what it means to surrender unconditionally to the Lord. I and all that I have are yours, Lord. If only Ahab would see his need to do that. Have you done that? Has there ever been a time in your life when you've said, Lord, me and everything I have is yours? That's an important decision to make if you've never made it. 
You need to make it. Well, Ahab's surrender came way easier than Ben-Hadad expected, so Ben-Hadad begins to think that Ahab's, he's in an even worse position than I assumed. So seeing blood in the water, he, dem- in the water, he demands more. Look at verse 5. So the messengers came again and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Although I have sent on you, saying, You shall deliver your silver and your gold and your wives and your children, yet I will send my servants unto you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be the whatsoever it ple- is pleasant in, their, in, their, in thine eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away. Now, these new demands weren't just a surrender of funds and of wives that were treaty wives. These new demands required total surrender of the city to Ben-Hadad's soldiers and officials. Ben-Hadad was now asking for more than just Ahab's stuff. He was asking for a blank check to take everyone else's stuff. Now, that yields the same results as a military defeat. The people would hate Ahab, and some of his officials might even consider making a move for the throne. So instead of just saying, okay, to those terms, Ahab deliberates much more on how to respond to this demand. Look at verse 7. Well, then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark, I pray you, and see how this man seeks mischief. For he sent unto me for my wives and for my children and for my silver and for my gold, and I did not deny him. So he brings all the elders of Israel in. These would be all the tribal leaders. I don't know if they were already in the city. Maybe they'd fled there. Like, I don't think everybody, all the leaders of the tribes just hang out in Samaria. But maybe they'd fled there when they saw the invasion. Maybe because there hadn't been any bloodshed yet, that travel wasn't hard. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly. I'm more inclined to think they were already in the city for some reason because it says, you need to give me an answer by this time tomorrow. My servants are going to come and inspect this time tomorrow. So 24 hours is not a long time to travel to get messages out to summon people. Either way, he finally lays out the full situation. Ahab calls him in. He goes, here's what's going on. He asked me for all this, and I said yes. And now look at this mischief. This word mischief there means complete ruin. He wants to absolutely completely ruin our nation. Ahab is a savvy leader. He knows what Ben-Hadad was after. Counting the, countering the rising threat of Assyria wasn't something Ahab was opposed to. Later on, they're going to ally and fight against the king of Syria. But these new demands proved to Ahab that nothing he did would ever satisfy Ben-Hadad. An agreement like that would cripple Ahab's rule of his own lands. He would become a puppet. And Ahab was opposed to that. And so he wants to gauge the tribal leader's response before making a decision. Verse 8, and all the elders and all the people said unto him, hearken not, don't listen to him, nor consent. You must not obey, you must not accept his terms. Wherefore, he said unto the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king, all that you did send for to your servant at the first I will do, but this thing I may not do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. So Ahab, when he does this, he's so shrewd. He's like, my people don't want to go to war, and we don't want to fight a battle we might lose, a war we might lose. So he's like, I'll do this, and we'll figure it out later. But then when these new demands come in, he's like, I'm not ready to become a puppet. And so he calls him in, he goes, see how this guy is only after our complete ruin. And he kind of paints a pretty bad picture to the tribal leaders. And the tribal leaders are like, you can't do that. You must not do that. No, we won't go along, we won't go along with that. And Ahab's like... Gotcha. Gotcha. 
See, now that they've cast their lot with him, whatever happens from this point on, he knows the people will be behind him. Whatever choice he makes, the people will be behind him if he resists. And his reply to Ben-Hadad reflects this. He says, listen, I'm okay with still being your vassal, but I'm not okay with you ruling our country from afar. He's like, I may not do this, which literally is, you're asking something of me I'm not capable of doing. You're asking more than I can give. My people, not just me, but my people refuse, and my people will do whatever we have to do to make sure it doesn't happen. It's a shrewd reply. It's not aggressive, but it does contain a warning. Don't push any farther, Ben-Hadad. You've won a victory here, a political victory, but don't push any farther. Well, Ben-Hadad does not like the response. Look at verse 10. Ben-Hadad sent unto him Ahab and said, The gods do so more unto me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me. The gods do more to me. We saw Jezebel use that curse formula, that pagan curse formula, um, when she threatened Elijah, and now we see the king do this um, to King Ahab. This is common in that time period, and it's basically a way of saying, I'm serious. In other words, the gods do to me what I plan to do to you and your city if I don't fulfill this thing. And what's the thing? He says, if my army doesn't take so much from you and from your people that they won't even be satisfied with leaving the dirt behind. A bold boast from Ben-Hadad. And it's one designed to panic Ahab into changing his mind because he's saying, if you don't agree to this, I won't be satisfied with anything less than wiping every single one of you out. But since the people are 100% behind resisting, Ahab isn't moved. And so he responds in verse 11 by saying, the king of Israel answered and said, tell him, let not him that girds on his harness boast himself as he that puts it off. I'm using that next week. Somebody gives me some smack, I'll be like, oh yeah, let not him that boasts, you know, putting on his harness boast as him that takes it off. Let not him that puts on his belt praise himself or admire himself as he takes it off. It's a picture, a a, a proverb or a picture saying uh, back then where the idea of a guy, you know, he's getting ready for war and he straps on his belt. You know, remember we studied the armor of God and we talked about how the belt holds, uh, how the sash holds all the pieces together. Like that's why it starts. The, the, The belt of truth is the word of God. It holds every other piece together. Like you can't get up there and be like, all right, I'm gonna have my helmet of salvation on if you don't have your belt on. If you're not grounded, in the Word of God, you could be like, I've got my helmet on. The enemy's going to like, oh yeah, you got to have your belt on. And the idea is that belt is that final thing that ties it all together and you're ready to go to war. He says, let another guy that looks in the mirror and goes, I'm ready to fight, be the same guy at that point in time who's, think you're that same guy that looks in the mirror after you've won the victory and you take the belt off and you can finally relax. He says, there's a lot of work to do in between before you can do that. It was a proverbial saying back then, similar to our don't count your chickens before they hatch kind of thing. You have work to do before you can celebrate or admire yourself in the mirror, buddy, for a victory one. And I and my people plan to make you work for every inch you plan to take. Well, Ben had to Again, he, he really was arrogant. He wasn't expecting this kind of reply. So verse 12, it came to pass when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking, he and the kings and the pavilions that he said unto his servants, set yourselves in array. And they set themselves in array against the city. Now, they're out drinking. That does not sound like a man who's strategizing how to wipe out a city. 
Like I would think a decision to wipe out a city would probably be a little bit more serious than this. They're not strategizing. He really is seeking to move Ahab through fear. And as Ahab's not moved, he, he's just upset. And, and uh, he's, they're in these tents. Pavilion's a really nice word for what they basically are, is the booths that Israelis would construct with their tree branches and stuff. This is not fancy stuff, right? It's not like he's sitting there drinking out of some gold chalice, you know, in a big, huge colored tent with pipers piping and whatever. No, they're, they're trying to find some shade under the hot sun with this tent constructed from tree branches and stuff. And, you know, and they're trying to make the most of it and chilling. This is not serious work that's going on here. And so he's not expecting this reply, and so he's upset when he gets it because his plan didn't work. And so he says, set yourselves in array, which means get to your battle stations. And so, says they prepared to attack. They set themselves in array. But just as things are about to get ugly, Ahab gets a visitor. Verse 13, and behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, have you, see, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Ahab surely is making battle plans, defense plans, whatever, and this prophet approaches him. We never learn this guy's name, so we have no clue who he is. Is he one of the hundred prophets Obadiah was hiding? You know, did he come out of hiding? Or was he just some other prophet who'd been faithful despite all the persecution? We don't know, but whoever this guy is, it officially, his appearance on this, in this chapter officially debunks Elijah's claim that he was the only faithful prophet left. It eliminates that claim. I, even I, only am left. You know, and it's almost like the writer's like, chapter 20. <laughs> How Elijah was incorrect. Now, I'm inclined to believe that this guy's appearance is evidence that things did change in Israel after God brought that fire on Mount Carmel. But even if it isn't evidence that things are different in Israel, it is evidence that God was still working even though Elijah was not present. It's evidence that God still had plans and was carrying them out even though things didn't go like Elijah hoped or expected. It is evidence that God's people were still responding and they were not a lost cause like Elijah claimed. It is easy to give in to despair or anger or pride when we see things around us going south. But this subject, this text here, reminds me of another prophet who wrote off an entire group of people because of the awful things they had done, a man named Jonah. You see, Jonah's problem was he crossed a line. I don't know when it happened in his heart or in his life. Maybe he never was on the right side of the line. I don't know. But Jonah crossed a line from wanting God to right every wrong to wanting to see every Assyrian wiped out. And those are two very different attitudes. He crossed a line from wanting to see God right every wrong to wanting to see God wipe every Assyrian out. And sometimes, sometimes we don't realize we've crossed that line, especially when groups of people get categorized. I am not 
a political analyst or expert. I'm not a culture analyst or expert. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a, I'm not a whateverologist. I'm not a meteorologist. I'm none of these things, all right? But I know when I read my Bible, in Galatians chapter 5, when it lists the works of the flesh, that four things are mentioned at the end of verse 20. Wrath, strife, seditions, which means dissensions, and then heresies. And I, I think I brought that up last Sunday that the word heresy there, it does mean false teaching, but it means dividing up into groups because we think different things. So I, when I see language and behavior that tries to categorize people into groups and forget that they're individuals, I know that that's the enemy. I know that that's a work of the flesh. I know that when a culture starts to develop the idea or an individual starts to develop the idea, oh, you think that way? Oh, then you're one of them. You're the enemy. You're the cause of all the problems I see. You need to be dealt with. I know that that's a work of the flesh. And I know if I feed that mentality long enough, eventually my mindset becomes very similar to Jonah's, where this group of people that I've categorized, I see them now as an obstacle that needs to be removed. This group of people I've categorized, they now are a lost cause. And I can get to a place where I don't even want God to redeem them anymore. Elijah was on that road when he was down at Mount Sinai, which is why the Lord sent him back to his people. Can I give you a well-intentioned exhortation? Stop seeing Jezebel in every person you meet. Seriously. I... So there are ideas, ideologies, um, sinful behaviors that I certainly look at and I go, that is so, that is so disconnected from the beautiful image of who God created us to be, all right? And as someone who is still being transformed but who has been transformed, you know, by the blood of Christ and Holy Spirit lives inside, there is a, obviously going to be a part of me that's gonna be grieved when I see that. Just in the same way I'm grieved when I see my own sin. So when I see a, a woman or a man who is struggling with their identity or who feels in some way that God has failed them by putting them you know, into the wrong body or whatever it might be or struggling with what it even means you know, to be who God created them to be or designed them to be, um, when, I, when I see ideas that are deceptive to young people and lead them astray in the ideas of their identity or their ideas of just what it means to be created in the image of God, 
there is a part of me internally, of course, that is grieved when I see that because I know there's a wrongness to it, okay? You know, in the same way, when I, I see my own children sin and, and I see the enemy kind of bringing those temptations and bringing the doubt into their life or bringing the fear into their life, and I'm grieved for them because the enemy has, has somehow gotten a landing base of operations into their life. I'm, I'm grieved when I, when I see that. And then alongside the grief is certainly then concern because you think to yourself, well, this is not good. If we have wrong ideas and we, we have wrong ideologies and we have sinful behavior taking place, then you think, well, this is going to then impact more people with those ideas and that ideology and with sinful behavior. So you get concerned. The danger is to then see the work that the enemy is doing in a culture or in an individual's life. And because now we might even see common ground where we see, well, now it's happening, it's spreading. It's spreading now. I've got a, I've got a nephew or I've got a, a friend, you know, and it's spread to them. We can all of a sudden begin to categorize all those people and then even demonize those people and begin to think you're the obstacle to life being the way it should be again. And so we look at like them like Elijah did and we go, we get, we get a letter from Jezebel and now everybody's Jezebel. I mean, we go back to chapter 19, verse 14, or no, I'm sorry, yeah, 14, and God says, why are you here, Elijah? And he goes, I've been very jealous for the Lord of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. What do you mean, the children of Israel? One person who's not even an Israeli threatened you, that's it. Like prior to that point, even King Ahab hadn't threatened you. But now everybody's Jezebel. People are individuals. They are not a category. They are not a group. Jesus died for individuals, not a category, not a group. And when I fail to grasp that or begin to backslide away from that, I start seeing people differently. I stop seeing people as souls Jesus endured the cross for, and I start seeing them as obstacles that need to be removed. So, when I start doing that, I forget a really important truth. If I'm going to look at life that way, I'm one of those obstacles that needs to be removed. And the only reason I'm not is because Jesus rescued me. And if he rescued me, he can rescue anyone else. You say, but this group is still out there, or this category of ideologies is still out there. Yes, it is. Do I like class warfare? No. Again, I'm not a political analyst, all right? I'm not going to try to argue with you if you know more than me about this. I'm sure you do. That's not my point. But again, I can look at Galatians 5, and I can see the work of the enemy in this class warfare idea that is in our culture right now, dividing us and bringing these, these, these uh, seditions, these heresies, all the, the strife, you know, and, and, and all that stuff. I can see that. I can see the work and identify the work of the enemy when I see that. And the solution to that 
Because Jesus stepped into a time period where there were categories of people. Oh, they're publicans. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying tonight, all right? I get annoyed to no end when I hear people like, Jesus hung out with prostitutes and, you know, and drunkards. I'm like, Jesus wasn't at the bar or at the strip club, all right? Like, I don't, what do you mean by that? Jesus hung out with strippers and with drunkards. You know, like, okay, maybe I can agree with you. Please elaborate for me. Now, are you saying that prostitutes and publicans and sinners came to him, and he was like, come here, hear the word of God? I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. If you're telling me that Jesus went and grabbed a, 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 a whatever, I, this, I don't drink. I have no clue what alcohol sounds like. So, Are you telling me that he pulled up inside the bar and he's like, what's up, bro? Good game. We're going to have an issue. Because Jesus, I know for a fact, did not do that. So, I'm not telling you that we don't acknowledge sin, that we don't speak truth. I'm not telling you that we don't be clear on what the Bible has to say about sinful behavior, about, about gender, about, about sexuality, about, about race, about our skin color, about our sin nature. Like, no, we need to do all those things. We need to be clear about that. But if we just categorize people into groups. And, and as we talk to them, we go, well, you're one of them. And we lose sight of who they are as an individual. Man, it's, it's not very hard to take the next jump that Jonah made and Elijah was about to make, which is, these people are a lost cause. Just get them out of the way, God. Jesus came into a culture that was very categorized You know what I love about Jesus? In John chapter 1, verses 40 through 42, it says, In one of the two which heard John the Baptist preaching about Jesus, it says he followed him and followed him. This is the guy who was following the John the Baptist was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And so Andrew, as he's listening to John the Baptist talk about Jesus, it says, He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he, Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, Peter, he said, oh, you're one of those. No. He said, you're Simon, the son of Jonah. You're going to be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a rock. Jesus didn't tell Simon, oh, you have an interest in me and my kingdom? Sit over there with the rest. Jesus called him by name, and then Jesus gave Simon his own special name for him. And the Bible tells us that Jesus does the same thing for everyone who is born again. It says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, to those who overcome, he says, well, I give to eat of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written which no man knows except he that receives it. In Isaiah 43, the Lord told Israel, you are mine. I have called you by name. 
God's heart is toward his people. He's, it's toward individuals. Jesus died for individuals. That heart needed to become Elijah's heart, and it needed to become our heart. And so we're going to stop here tonight. Next week, we'll look at what the prophet says to King Ahab and what God does for his people. But for now, the question I would, I would maybe encourage you to ask yourself is this, is do you believe that God is still working? Like if you turn on whatever news station you listen to or whatever news outlet you get your information from, you could very easily get the impression that God's done or God can't. Do you believe that God is still working? Do you believe that He still wants to save souls? Do you believe that He still wants to use you? And do you believe that He wants to rescue those who are the most opposed to Him and even you or what you're trying to accomplish? Because if the answer is no, then it's probably time for an Elijah kind of conversation with the Lord. Let's all stand. Lord, I'm so grateful for this section of Scripture because it challenges me every time I read it. Your heart is so wonderful, Lord. It's so different than us. But we're grateful, Lord, that you've come and you live inside us and you're changing us. And so you have your word here for us. You challenge us. You convict us. You encourage us. And so I pray for all my brothers and sisters tonight who maybe they've lost that hope or maybe they just can't see any way God can use them. They've, they've stopped sharing their faith. Or they've stopped seeing the individual. Or they stopped believing that God could save this person because they're part of this group or they do this. Lord, fill us with hope. Fill us with excitement. Lord, to fulfill the Great Commission, to go out and make disciples. All the world, Lord. Fill us with faith. Show us where we need to trust you with, these, with things where maybe we haven't so that, Lord, we can continue to fulfill your command, which is to go knock down hell gates, take ground back from the enemy. Not for this kingdom, Lord, but for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.